Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. Today I have with me Tina Strawn. And uh, Tina, if you would, introduce yourself and uh, name your identities, whatever identities are important to you. Sure. I am someone who identifies as a Black joy advocate, as a liberation activist, and as an author. I am the author of the newly released book, Are We Free Yet? The Black Queer Guide to Divorcing America. I am the owner of the Speaking of Racism podcast, and the heart of my work and my life is leading legacy trips, which are three-day anti-racism trips where we visit historical locations and landmarks such as the lynching memorial, which is actually called the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, and also the Legacy Museum from enslavement to mass incarceration. Both of those are projects of the Equal Justice Initiative. We also visit the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, And we recently added to our agenda visiting the Mothers of Gynecology Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. And that work is centered around um, utilizing spiritual practices as tools to dismantle racism, first within ourselves and then in our homes and our communities and beyond. Um, I am a queer Black woman-identifying human who is a minimalist nomad. I have an ex-husband, I have an ex-wife, and I have an ex-country. I left the United States in July of 2020, so I'm approaching my third year of my Blacksit journey, and I know we'll probably talk about that a little bit more. Um, And I... And I live right now in Costa Rica. That's where I'm talking to you from. I've been living here for a little over a year. So that's a little bit about me. Thank you so much. And I want to get right into the book. This is the kind of book where you can't like skip a, like a little bit. You can't skip anything. I'm, I'm really, I just really also want you to know I'm a little bit upset with you because I'm like, I wish I I would have written that book like it's, it's, <laughs> like it's everything. Wow, thank you. And thank I shouldn't you, be angry with you, maybe the universe. Like, why couldn't you give, like, it's so good. <laughs> the title of your book, Are We Free Yet? And the Are We Free Yet? The Black Queer Guide to Divorcing America. And, and just ask, um, in terms of freedom, are you free yet? Hmm. Some days I feel the answer is yes, and some days I feel the answer is no. And most days I feel it's a combination of both. Um, I, I'll quote Angela Davis, who says, freedom is a constant struggle. 
And I think one of the, it's so interesting that you're asking me this question. Have you talked to Letty? Uh, this no. Week? Okay. Okay. Cause she just asked, I, I recorded uh, an, an episode with her earlier this week and she asked me that same question. And so of course, as you can imagine, right. And you, you know, Letty, so that probably makes a lot of sense to you that you both are, are asking questions along the same lines. But I, I love this question so much because especially for queer black women like you and I, um, and and black women, black people of all um, uh, all across the diaspora. This is such a heavy question for us. Um, also, I will quote Lorraine Hansberry, um, who uh, was a black um, writer, playwright, author, um, poet, who wrote "Raisin in the Sun," uh, who I also quote in the book, where she says, "If I were asked today." If I am a free citizen of the United States of America, am I free? The answer would be no. And I think that depending on the day that you ask us and the current situation um, uh, of what's taking place in the in the states will determine our answer. And I want to place us right now in this moment in February of 2023. So we have just entered the new year still. We have seen the brutal murders of Keenan Anderson and Tyree Nichols by police. Um, we are experiencing horrendous anti-trans legislation coming out across the states. And we are seeing the erasure of black voices and black authors by book bans also across the states. So we are seeing the very visible and, and just flagrant, blatant, overt attempts to erase us and to extinguish us. And so I think the question, well, I know that this question um, that I chose to title the book is something that Black Americans have to wrestle with every single day. And I think that our answers will vary depending on what's going on in, in the country at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I wanted to read a portion of uh, your book on from page six, if that's okay. Please. <laughs> and I'm going to skip around a little bit, but but you say there's always a George Zimmerman who will be found not guilty of killing us in a U.S. court of law. And then later on, you say Black Lives affirms the lives of all Black queer and trans folks, disabled folks, undocumented folks, folks with records, women, and all Black lives along the gender spectrum. It centers those that have been marginalized within Black liberation movements. It is a tactic to rebuild the Black liberation movement. And so I, as I was reading that, like, especially the part where you say, like, there will always be a George Zimmerman. Mm. And then I go down to where you're, you're talking about like black liberation. And then I, I, I went, you know, further on in the book and you're talking about voting and should we vote? Mm thinking about the state of America and where we still remain on this um, totem pole 
uh, as Black people, it really motivated me and, and confirmed my feelings about voting. Like I've always voted, but it didn't feel like the liberty that they proclaim that it's like this, uh, you know, like we're playing this major role mm, mm, mm. because the liberation that they talk about and the freedom that they talk about, we don't have that. We still don't have that yet. We still don't have that yet. Mm-hmm. And so I thought to myself after this last election, I said, you know, I voted for somebody that I didn't want. I'd want to vote for Biden. I, I, mm. I just didn't. Mm, 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 mm-hmm. But I did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it just seems like it's just been a process to keep politicians wealthy. It's mm. not for us. We're just pawns. So I guess I just say all of that to say thank you for naming that and speaking about the liberation of all. I I hear you and I see you and that conflict of in particular voting. And what I will say is what it sounds like um, just in the resonance for you as you read those portions and that that the portions that you're referring to are in the the last part of the book there are four parts the final part is entitled activism and liberation and I talk about meeting Stacey Abrams and I talk about some other things and that we can go down whatever path you want and it's interesting Tasha because I've done about 20 interviews in the past six and uh, two to four to six weeks and you're the first person to mention that and I've been waiting for this question. And and I'll say just a few things here because I want people to experience it by reading the book. But I do want to say this because you know that in the book, I quote uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor from her book, How We Get Free. And when I read her words about the voting habits of Black people and the voting habits in particular of black women who the Democrats run around proclaiming is their largest and most powerful voting group. But when I saw those stats and those numbers about our numbers decreasing and since when and why through a black, a queer black feminist lens, That really stood out to me Uh, as someone who had been very active politically during the 2018 midterm election season, which I again, I talk about that in the book. um, I I personally held a dozen voter registration drives across the Atlanta area um, in 2018. And there was definitely a shift. There has been a shift for me, obviously. <laughs> um, but to include that in the book, I'll, I'll be honest, that was, it's very, um, it's very vulnerable for us to have this conversation. Um, and, and, but the reality is the Democrats are not coming to save us. And we need to be real honest about that. Um, and it is what you said, uh, as far as we are, just continuing to line the pockets of politicians that are aligned with corporations that are aligned heavily with capitalism, proud capitalists. Um, 
And so the invitation is for people to interrogate deeply what voting means to them. Like, let's look at holistic perspective um, without taking away the fact that our ancestors died for the right to vote. And if the Democrats keep giving us trash, if the Democrats continue to be law enforcement, police, policing and prison loving, like, like if that's what they're going to continue to do, they need to know they have to answer to black women. And I really just want to stop there with that because I just, that that's the invitation. Yeah. Okay. Just one thing though. Okay. Cause you said the Democrats aren't coming to save us and, and really none of them are coming to save us. We, we have to save each other. It, it almost yes. feels like we have to take back everything. Yes. And let me say this also, since we're going to, let's, let's go deeper. You're right. Let's, <laughs> let's go a little bit deeper. Cause I don't want to just stop there. You're right. Cause I want to say this, we have to save ourselves. Yes. And a place that I believe that we need to be more engaged and involved in is at the local levels, local levels and state levels. And so it's a matter of holding all of our elected officials accountable, but also it is an invitation for us to separate ourselves from the rhetoric and from the, the, the languaging and really the, the bullying of this vote blue, no matter who I can, you, can we find, I don't, I don't, I don't personally know. And let me just say, I know a lot of people. Okay. I don't know one person in my circle who is proud of what is going on right now in the house of whiteness. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean the white house. Seriously. And it's, it's been democratic led for the past few years. And what have we seen take place? And I understand that, that the Republicans have done a tremendous job of setting up, you know, the Supreme court and the, the justices, like, I, I get that it, it's bigger and deeper than that. But we also need to continue to we need to continue to recognize that the system of the Electoral College. But this is how I feel about the fact that we just need to pay closer attention and we need to really ask ourselves, what does it mean to participate in upholding oppressive systems and what does it mean to tear shit down? That's it. That's it. Um, the, a couple of days ago, I you know, posted on IG about like mutual aid. Mm-hmm. And I just started just thinking like, like this life, this life that I live right now and being able to just help random people in that way mm-hmm. feels as close, I feel as close to God or as close to being even Christ-like, and I don't identify as that anymore, but as ever, like, mm-hmm. like this feels more in line with being the hands and feet. Mm, yes, yes. And, and being in community, white supremacy culture has stripped us of community. 
And, and this saving ourselves and saving each other is realizing like the power that we have. The power. Yes. Yes. And really starting to walk in that power and really educating ourselves. And, and you spoke about this um, and, and addressing our own anti-Blackness and, and all of these things. So to connect that with what, you know, we were talking about as far as government, this is how you change government, but you, but it's also much bigger. It's much bigger than that. Um, and if it's okay, uh, I wanted to kind of go to chapter 25, where you talk about the relationship with anti-Blackness and I'm going to read it because I just love, again, this is what we're going to do today. Yes, please do. <laughs> Let's go there all the way. Yeah. You say, when I, when I say unpack, I mean, get to the bottom of what lies beneath the surface of your thought process and belief system. Get to the root of what you internalize about the bullshit that keeps us enslaved, such as, but not limited to, white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy. And then a little bit further, once you see the ways that you have adopted harmful perceptions, stereotypes, ideas, attitudes about, and towards Black people, you will begin to see the oppressive systems that are in place, one that serve racist functions and have racist impact. In terms of like coming to terms with like your own anti-Blackness, for me, I feel like that's going to be a lifelong journey. And so I'd like, you know, to hear your thoughts on that, but also to ask, when did you first really start kind of your own process of, of looking at things, you know, and your own anti-Blackness? It started for me, I, I think I will have to say my entire journey of um, going through my, my racial identity and coming to the awareness of the ways that I had internalized anti-Blackness um, and assimilated to whiteness for years and years. Um, that began with my racial awakening, which started in July of 2016, when I accidentally saw the videos of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling being killed by police, uh, respectively in Minnesota and Louisiana. And that shattered me and broke me in a way that I've never been the same. And it started me on this journey and on this path. And so I did not have the language of, um, divesting from whiteness and, 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 unpacking my own internalized racism and white supremacy until uh, several years later. Um, I, I will name here someone that I follow and admire and who is a good friend of mine, um, Kina Reed of the anti-Blackness reader and divesting from whiteness. And I've learned so much from her um, and I, I, I find myself quoting her words often, um, and I hear her voice in my head. And the main thing that her voice in my head will say is, I will not police black people in an anti-black world. And if there is one sentence that just shuts all of it down, that is the sentence. So when I am tempted to look at another black person and make a judgment about what they are doing, how they are living their life, the way that they are choosing to be in the world, I hear Kina's voice in my head saying, I'm not 
going to judge black people in an anti-black world. And that's, that is something that I have your, I agree with you. And I feel the same way. It is going to be because anti-blackness is a global project. It is going to be a lifelong journey for us to continue to bump up against when we um, notice the, the way our reactions, when we feel like black people are air quotes, acting out, acting crazy, acting a fool, acting ghetto, all of these things that we assign to those across the, the, the African diaspora, like I am going to forever be checking myself and some days I'm better than others. And it's the same with my own internalized, um, homophobia and transphobia and ableism and all of these things. This is, this is why it is a, a journey, a lifelong journey. This is why um, it's so necessary if we're going to be on healing journeys and liberation paths that we are always um, unpacking what we have been socialized to accept and believe in the ways that we uphold our own oppression and, and the ways that we perpetuate it. All of that. I have nothing to add. That was so good. <laughs> And I agree, it, it is lifelong. I often tell my clients, like, anti-Blackness is in all of us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just because you're, you, you know, you, you love Black people, that does not mean that you're, we're all impacted by white supremacy, every yes. single person. Yeah. We're born into it. It's in our DNA and we have to, we have to really address it. Like as often in whatever ways it comes up in, in masking and in all the things that, that we do to really, and our ancestors had to do to stay alive. It is, it's like any healing, it's, it's going to be lifelong and that's okay. It's all right. Yeah. One of the things that helped me on my um, being in one, one of the things that helped me with being intentional about addressing my own anti-blackness. And I say it in the book, it's, it's, I think one of the next sentences after you, what you just read is replacing the harmful narratives with truth, the truth about black humanity and centering our, our, our dignity and our joy and just our inherent value as as humans. Um, and it's that reframing and reshaping that has really made a tremendous um, difference in the way that I um, interact with experience and love. Tasha, I just, I love us. I, I, I fucking love us. And the more that I divest from whiteness, the more I love us and the more that I unpack the lies that we have been told because the the operating system, the water is white supremacy. But the more that I reflect on the stories of us, the more, and this is why I include in my book, um, the stories of, of my family, my grandparents, and just realizing that we are so precious and we always have been, and we always will be. That that reframes and reshapes. And that's the, that's the invitation. I like, I'm, 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 I'm sick of social media and I know I'm not supposed to be And my, my, my publisher would rather that I not be sick of social media because I, I need to sell more books. But the reality is I'm sick of the way that, um, black 
Blackness seems to be so synonymous with struggle and pain and trauma and suffering. Um, and that's because that's how we're treated. I, I understand where it comes from. And there is like, that's just real. Um, and something that I think about is when I see black creators, um, I'm thinking right now, particularly of Maisha Hill of Check Your Privilege. I'm thinking about Monique Melton. Um, uh, and, and I'm thinking about the ways that that we are pointing out to our audiences and our platforms. Why do, why do the posts that I post about black joy and black rest and black, black people just having a good time minding, like why, when I post about that is my engagement lower than when I'm talking about um, the police killing us? Why, why is that? And so I, in my intention to uproot any signs of anti-blackness inside of me when I identify it. I am intentional about making decisions where am I, I am making intentional decisions about centering, and this is in the book, centering tools for liberation, such as our healing, such as joy and peace and pleasure. And that is actually why I made the shift from calling myself and identifying as an anti-racism educator and shifting it to no, I'm a black joy advocate. That is specifically um, against and in the face of centering oppression as, as the heart of my work, when the, the heart of my work is black liberation and black joy. I feel like um, you read my questions, like because <laughs> because you literally just went into the thing. I have the, my next question. I'm just gonna read. Okay, so this is this is from Chapter 37: White People's Problems. There came a moment. This is this is you um, in, in this chapter. Uh, there came a moment when I realized that in my attempt to rid the world of racism by calling myself an anti-racism ra racism educator and facilitator. I was centering white supremacy in my life, what you just said. And then you said, you know, I realized that by focusing on racism all the time, I was stealing sweetness from myself of always teaching about the dynamics of oppression was that I was, wait, I've always, was, bleh, I can't talk, was that I, remo I was removed from an empowered place of, liber place of liberation. I'm sorry, I messed that up. And then you say, um, later on at the end of the chapter, I decided to shift my focus from what I didn't want to what I did want. I decided that instead I wanted to educate, facilitate, and inspire around grieving and healing and centering tools for liberation for Black folks. I was done with centering my work on talking to white people about racism and other systems of oppression. Okay. And so I read that and, and it really spoke to my heart because when I, I follow a, a number of, of people that are anti-racism educators or they're working with you know DEI and all of this stuff. And so I kind of just sit back and think like, wow, I, I wonder if they're aware of how that's sitting in their bodies. That part. Like the long terms, there's implications. There's, yes. When, when that is, that, that is your focus, that is your center and you're doing that every single day speaking about toxicity mm -hmm. 
you're feeling that, that there's, there's thematic responses to this. I don't know. I just, I love that, that you are also in, in redirecting and renaming yourself. It's, it's like a manifestation. You're also calling in joy. You're calling in love. You're yes. calling in pleasure. Yes. You're calling yes. in ease. Yes. yes. And, and let me say a little bit more to that because when I was married to my ex-wife um, is when I made this decision to retire from my 17 year fitness career and do my racial and social justice work full-time. And I remember Tasha, that there would be days where my wife would say to me, and, and she's a, a black, she was a, she's a black woman. But there were days where she would say to me, babe, can we not talk about racism right now? Can we, can we not talk about racism? Like maybe this evening. And I, that for me was a, a very illuminating moment where I realized how heavy this burden was, this cross that I was carrying and how I was asking her to also carry this burden and this cross with me. And this does not mean that we don't speak about it. This does not mean that I don't teach about it because I absolutely do still teach about racism to white people. I lead and run um, programs where we take people to the lynching memorial. That's what Legacy Trips is. We walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. We confront very um, somatically, uh, we're in Alabama of all places. Um, it, it is not a matter of, of, of not speaking about it anymore. It's a matter of what are we focusing on? What are we centering? And exactly the words that you said, how is this living in our bodies? What I noticed about myself and about my fellow colleagues who also identify currently or previously as anti-racism educators is Tasha, we were by early 2020, we were worn out by the time George, by the time we had run for Maude, by the time we were in the streets marching for George Floyd, <laughs> we were so weary and we continue to be weary and we continue to be re-traumatized. And I, I, I am so I'm worried about us. I'm worried about those of us in particular who are immersing ourselves in, in this type of work from through that lens, like you said, every day, day in and day out, on top of dealing with whatever the current anti-Black violence is coming out from, you know, in the news and, and against us uh, uh, at the hands of the state, we there is a reclaiming and a taking back of our dignity and our humanity that has to take place. And I think that we have a we in particular, as those who are fighting for justice, um, we have a, an opportunity to, to make some shifts in in the culture around the new civil rights movement and the things that we are fighting for. I think we have an opportunity to, to make some shifts there. And that's what I've chosen to do. I also want to ask about, cause I got a lot of questions about other, other parts of your book, but I feel like I don't, I don't want to miss the fact that, that you actually did 
follow through with plans that that you and your ex had about leaving America. Mm -hmm. And and so you've been on this journey for three years. Mm -hmm. What has your body felt like Mm -hmm. since (laughs) that decision in traveling and, and all of that? My body has felt lighter. My body has known a peace that I never knew in the States. And what I will boldly say on behalf of the Blacksit community, and we'll kind of, I would love to talk about this more, one of the number one reasons that thousands and thousands and thousands of African-Americans have made the decision to exit the U.S. and live abroad Um, One of the main reasons that we are making that choice is for peace. We do it in a lot of different ways. There are folks, you know, so there's not one right way to do this. Um, We are very innovative and creative in the ways that we are making this work. And we are all over the globe. But the consistent thread is that we have fled the plantation looking for a better way of life. We have left the burning building and we are trying to bring as many people with us as we can. Now, I will say here, every black person does not want to leave the U.S. Every black person is not going to and should not necessarily. It it is not a a um, judgment, uh, you know, that black folks should leave or have to leave. What I'm saying is there are people there are black people that are that feel a stirring inside of them that there's gotta be better. There's gotta be something more. And, and it is to those people that I am speaking to, and it is to those people that we are calling and saying, come, it is no different from what Harriet Tubman did. It is no different from what millions of, of African-Americans across the South during Jim Crow did in the great migration. We are in search of a better life. And some folks are gonna find that in different parts of the country, they're gonna move from one place to the other. And that is the goal. The goal is black liberation, get free however you can, wherever you find it. I am simply offering something that felt very radical for me. And perhaps it will feel radical for other black folk who have never heard the term Blacksit. And I'll explain that in a moment um, because that term is still, it's not mainstream yet. And so if I can, I'll, I, I'll explain, I'll give the definition. Okay. So, so Blacksit is the combination of two words, both black and exit And it describes the resurgence of African-Americans who have chosen to exit the United States, either in part or primarily due to systemic racism and anti-Black violence and terror that we experience in the United States. And I refer to this as the new Underground Railroad because there are networks of black people in countries all over the globe that are waiting to welcome 
Black Americans in particular who are seeking this better way of life. We there are relocation specialists. People are becoming, you know, digital nomads, uh, and especially after um, after COVID arrived, um, and people, some many people had the ability to work online. And so this is what I mean when I say that we are finding creative ways. And this is also what I mean when I say this is a radical path of liberating ourselves. Um, everyone's not going to choose to, and everyone's not going to um, be able to for a variety of reasons. I know folks want to, you know, you can't leave your your grandparents or your parents that you're taking care of. You got like, I understand all of that. And so then this particular path to leave the country is not for everyone. But I do know because I speak to black folks every day who tell me in the DMs, who email me, who read the book and say, wow, I, I, I don't I've never met anyone who's moved out of the country. Like, you know, like these these are the stories. But if you if you just 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 search hashtag Blacksit on Instagram, just go to Google and put in Blacksit and see how many things pop up. I remember when I first heard the term. I want to say I first heard the term Blacksit in 2018 and i began to follow a a a young black formerly incarcerated woman who had moved to vietnam and there was another person that i followed i believe he was called uh the black digital nomad or minority digital nomad minority nomad something like this who also lived in vietnam and i followed them over a period of time and i said wow i it never occurred to me that number 1 well it, it never occurred to me to that there were black people who had left the United States and moved to Vietnam. And Tasha, when I tell you, I, I watched them thrive. It just sparked something inside of me. And I said, I want that too. And so originally my first path and plan with my, my wife at the time was that we were going to move to um, Vietnam and become a part of that growing black expat community there. Um, and then what would happen, I talk about this in the book a little bit, is I was offered some work in Durban, South Africa. And so then that became the place which was exciting because that would allow us to go to the continent, right? Go to the motherland and for the first time. Um, and South Africa being the only country on the continent continent of Africa that recognized and had some rights and legal protections for the LGBT community, because currently across many countries in Africa um, and Ghana in particular, um, there is horrid, violent legislation against the LGBTQIA plus community, where our lives, even in Africa, are are at risk and being threatened. And, 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 and so that was where we were going to go. Um, and then, you know, COVID hit and everything shut down and work was canceled. So my work was canceled there. And so I shifted my plans back to Vietnam, um, waiting for their borders to open up. And that's when I actually found myself in Jamaica. So another question, you know, you briefly mentioned about the Blackset community. Um <clears throat> When it comes to relocating to a different country, uh, learning the customs, the, the culture, the language, um, was having that Blackset community, being a part of that helpful in, in learning about the local culture and, and also the language? 
In every way. Absolutely. It was very helpful. Um, you know, learning the language is something different, uh, because that, that is, that requires so much more than I think what the, the, the blacks at communities were able to offer. That's something that we have to take on personally. So, you know, I'll speak to Jamaica where of course the, it's, it's an English speaking country. Mm-hmm. It's an English speaking black country. Um, but they speak Patois. Many, many Jamaicans speak Patois. Um, and so while I can understand Patois a little bit better, and I wouldn't say I could speak it, but I definitely can understand it better than when I arrived. Uh, I lived in Jamaica for about a year. Um, what I, that, that is, you know, the language piece was separate from the fact that I did find a very welcoming Blackset community that I became a part of. And I helped to build also um, in Jamaica and met many friends and that I still have. And we, we, you know, keep in touch, even though I'm still not in Jamaica. Um, I talk about a friend that I met through the Blackset community in Jamaica in the book, um, um, my friend, Erica Watson. So, um, that's what I'll say about Jamaica. And then here in Costa Rica, <laughs> where it's a Spanish speaking country and I am working on my Spanish. Let me say I am working on it. I am not there yet. I am not as far as I would like to be having lived here for over a year. But to, this year is is a it's a priority. I need to hire a tutor and get like I just need to I, I want to be further along. Um, and I do think that is a, necess- a, a, a necessary piece when we choose to, um, you know, be a guest in a in another country. I think that's important. Um, but what I can also say is that the people here of Costa Rica um, are a beautiful, uh, friendly, and helpful people. And I have I, I have not had any problems. Um, as an English speaking black woman moving around freely here in Costa Rica. Um, but back to the community, the entire reason that I just wound up moving to Costa Rica and, and which is where I live now is because of black women. Um, I was, I had no plans to move to Costa Rica, just like I had no plans to move to Jamaica. You got to read the book to understand that. Um, but I had, I had been working with my sex doula um, and my friend, Amina Peterson of the Atlanta Institute of Tantra and Divine Sexuality. And I had scheduled a private one-on-one retreat with her and she lived in Costa Rica. And so I came with the intention of just doing that work with her and moving on to the next country as I waited um, to return to Jamaica. But when I got here, I fell in love with the country of Pura Vida, which means the pure life. Um, And I found that there were, there was a community of black people here um, called the black expats of Costa Rica. And so when I discovered this community and network of black people here, I decided to stay. And again, now I am a part of that um, community of expats and continue to welcome, um, black folks who are, you know, wanting to check out different areas of, of this country and find out where they want to be. And I'm, I'm here with a beautiful group of black expats, many queer black expats as well. That's the other thing. It's like, there, what kind of universe have I found myself in where 
there are queer black people here in this little brown town where I live in Costa Rica. Tasha, it is, it's remarkable, the spaces that we are creating for ourselves. And that is why I am so confident that we are the ones that we've been waiting for. We are the ones, we are the ones that will, that will get ourselves free. You know, I was, as you were talking about Costa Rica and the people, I went to Costa Rica a few years ago um, before, before the pandemic and um, maybe like the year before the pandemic, but anyhow, I was in Jaco and Manuel Antonio. Okay. Okay. And the people Mm. in this hostel where. I mean, it was just like we were family or something. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even, I mean, the people that worked there, it was like they were just kind of watching out for me and just like, it's very talkative and I felt at home and I could write and I could just chill out. And then I didn't want to leave because, I mean, they were just so kind. Yeah. Um, and I went, this was a solo trip. And, and then when I got to Manuel Antonio, I left with maybe about 10 friends. <laughs> yes. That's and a, it that's, just that sounds Costa Rican. That sounds about it, right. Yeah, it just felt so good, and the food and just everything. Um, and I don't people there, so now I'm like, where are they? Um, <laughs> um, you know, I I don't hang around the tourist areas, and, right. and you know, Hako. I I go to Hako often because that's the the nearest and and most popular beach. So maybe, yeah, yeah, that that's to where I live. Um, so I, I'm familiar crowded. with, yeah, that it's very, it's touristy there. And uh, yeah. like I said, I, I live in a little local Tico town and Tico mm-hmm. is, is the, 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 the name that local Costa Rican people call themselves Ticos and Ticas. Um, and, but what you described as far as um, how you just, the, the Costa Rican people are a very friendly people. I I've lived here. Like I said, over a year, I do not speak the language. I do not have a car. I have moved around so freely and easily. It has been, it's, it's, I just, I would love for, I want people to come whether, and whether they come to Costa Rica or, or central South America or go anywhere else, it find the free people. That's something I talk about in my book. You find do the free people. Mm-hmm. I think that may be a part that I um, wanted to to read. Page 98, and it's a chapter um, titled Finding Peace and Pain. Mm-hmm. And you say in the book, I was a grown-ass woman when my father disowned me for being gay. I realized that not all Christians feel this way, but people check your faith. Check your devotion to your Jesus or God or whomever you serve. And most of all, check your heart. Ask yourself, where is the love? And so when you turn inward and and you ask yourself that question, where is the love for you? Where have you found that? First in myself. And that has come at a cost. Um, Because when we make the decision to heal and love ourselves and 
acknowledge our own, what I believe is divinity, um, we have to, we will make dis- difficult decisions, which will be to allow, as well as insist that the people who cannot acknowledge our humanity do not get access to us. So while my father disowned me and abandoned me, there were, there have been times where he has uh, only a few times where he has reached out. And I, I, I reference it in the book that there was a, a, a time a few years ago where he had something particular, another attempt in his mind to, you know, persuade me to come back to the light and to save my soul from hell. And I recognize that in even leaving that door open for him to hit my phone with his religious abuse, I was no longer going to allow even that level of access to me. Um, And that is because I found the love in myself. And Tasha, what's interesting is I am, there was a piece that I wrote that was just published for the publication called America Hates Us. And Uh in the first um, few lines of what I wrote, I talk about how I am the embodiment of love. And if you really believe that you are the embodiment of love, you can't just hang around just anybody. You won't just tolerate just anything. And so that's where I found the strength and the courage and the peace to endure through the pain that I talk about in the book is I know who I am. I'm convinced. You can't convince me that I'm not love. You can't convince me that I'm an abomination. You can't anymore. I used to believe that. And I understand why it is necessary for religious oppressive structures and systems and institutions to promote that and to hold that as a, as a tenant, I get it. And so when you get free from that, when we learn who we are, when we understand that we are all the embody, we are love. I, he is, my father is no more love and no less love than I am. And that was my response, daddy. I said, you know, daddy, I'm not gonna, I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't curse you because my love is not set up that way. Um, and what I will share with you is that that piece that I just wrote that I referenced, um, I wrote it at, in um, a place where I was doing some grief journaling and missing my father. I am 45 years old. And especially having um, come off so recently of these uh, recent deaths, of Tyree Nichols and what is taking place against the um, trans community and our trans siblings right now, I have been pained and I was writing about missing my father and just wishing that I didn't have to be that ram in the bush. Um, In reference to the story of Abraham of God telling in the in the biblical story of God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
and Abraham going up that mountain with his son and Isaac saying, well, dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham saying, the Lord will provide. And what did the Lord provide? The Lord provided a ram in the bush. And what I have come to understand is that I was the ram in the bush that my father chose to sacrifice on the altar to his God. So where is the love? I found it in myself and I'm, I miss my father and I have forgiven my father and I still demand acknowledgement and respect of my humanity. I'm not asking my father or anybody who subscribes to that type of Christianity to approve of, um, you know, condone any of that. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to persuade you that I'm human. I'm not trying to persuade you. I, I am simply saying, ain't I a woman? Powerful. Where is the offering plate? Where can I send my tithes and offering right now? <laughs> I will absolutely give you the cash app for the listeners. Absolutely. The listeners need your cash app. <laughs> so I want to read one final thing. Let me show you this page. Wait, geez, my sleep cake is getting caught. You see all that? Write your own declaration of liberation. Yes. <laughs> So I was just showing Tina all of my highlighting. Mm -hmm. So in this chapter, you write, there must come a point when we stop asking if we can pull up a chair to the, to the oppressive tables. We must stop asking those who sit in power if we can please have our freedom back. It is a lie that we must seek the benevolence of our oppressors in hopes of being granted our freedom. We must take our freedom for ourselves. We must not agree that they hold the power by asking them to stop oppressing us. We must demand our freedom. We must assume our freedom. We must empower ourselves to get ourselves fucking free. No person can give another person freedom unless the, the unfree person agrees that their freedom belongs to the person whom they are asking their freedom from. Who is it that you must ask for your freedom? And then another question, who do you need to get permission from to walk away from a relationship with an abuser? And then the final question that I highlighted is, when did you give them your power? And so I did skip some, some areas, but those are the all of the spots that really were just like, whoa. And, and I read that and I thought, wait a minute, are we still talking about like white supremacy culture? Are we talking about like America and, and, and all of the, the isms and things? Or is this a, a much broader message? All oppressors, all abusers, no matter their relationship. Because I read these questions and I said, this is the part of the book where, where I need to tell my clients, first of all, get this book and turn to this page. Mm, mm, mm. And, and, and read page 239 and ask yourself these questions. Mm. 
And so was that, I, I guess my question is, I was just so in awe, just, you're an amazing writer, but was that your intent for, to just at large, look at all of the oppressive systems and relationships? That was absolutely the intent. Um, you know, Tasha, when I started writing the book, it was right after my wife had left me out of the blue. I am devastated. I'm heartbroken. And I was grieving deeply um, because I, it came out of nowhere and I truly thought she was my soulmate and we had become nomads together and had all these plans, all of this yada, yada, yada. So when I signed the contract to write the book, I thought that the book was going to be mostly about my grieving and healing journey from my marriage to, to my ex-wife, but also my ex-husband. I just thought that that was kind of going to be a central and, and main theme. And it wasn't until I did more writing and more grief journaling that I realized that yes, I did need, have some healing to do with regards to the end of that marriage, but I realized how much deeper it went. And that is where, where we landed, where I landed with recognizing that this is not just about a personal relationship with a, a spouse. This actually goes deeper. And this is about my relationship to the country, to the United States. And this is actually bigger than even that. It is about our relationship to all systems of oppression, which is really what reframed the whole book, right? And I, I talk about how this book is a memoir style guidebook in that it is the telling of both, it's both a personal reflection as well as a collective examination of the ways that we relate to systems of oppression. And so that is the invitation is for folks to read this. And in it, you're gonna hear my my, my story, my queer black love and loss story. Yes. But you're going to actually get a lot more because it is an invitation for people to place themselves wherever they are and whatever their circumstances and situations look like and look around and see what's oppressing you. What is it that you need to get free from? And who is it that you need to ask for your freedom back? Mm, thank you so much. Powerful. Who do you need to ask? Mm. That's an interesting inquiry. I think about, you know, when I we used to work in corporate America in, uh, and, and how, you know, you have to, if, if you're going to go on vacation, you have to get permission. It has to get approved for that, you know, that PTO. Even when we are sick, even when you're sick, you have to get permission to stay at home and not come into work because you are sick. So it, it is, I was really thinking a lot along those lines of when we want to go and have a little piece of joy, we want to go on that vacation after, you know, working for a company for however long, like we have to get permission. We have to ask our bosses. It has to get approved by the supervisor. It has to go through HR and all of this process. And it, that, that kind of was a part of the sentiment in writing that is, is who's the boss who's in charge here, who has the power to say, yes, your joy has been approved. Yes, your freedom has been approved. Well, who is that person? Go, please find that person. I, and I and I hope, and this is kind of giving it away. I mean, I, I guess, but I hope that you ultimately decide that person is you. That mm -hmm. you've got to you've got to be the one to decide. I I 
decide if I am going to be free or I'm going to decide about how I'm going to get free, how I'm going to go about that. I'm going to decide to live a life of joy and prioritize that. So um, that's, that's where that, that came from. I love that. It's for me, when, when I was reading the questions, I said, if, if readers are paying attention, they'll be empowered going through these questions. If they're paying attention, Mm. it's a God, it's not just your story. It's, it's our story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's so many intersections where we can all just place ourselves right there. Mm. Like me too. She's talking about me too. You know, I said, if readers aren't careful, they, they will read this and say, whoa, I've got my agency back. Mm. That's it. Yeah. I'm taking back power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I didn't write it down, but I read a part of your book to a friend this morning because you were talking about the language of like, when we say, oh, somebody's spoiled or, you know, and, and how that used to have a negative connotation. And, um, and I thought, oh, I love that. The idea of I can spoil myself. Mm. I can be as good to myself as I am for other people. And when you're looking at things again, from an empowered perspective, then it's that realization that I can make decisions for myself. I can be really good to myself. Yes. I'm good to everybody else, but what if I can turn and and, and be that for me? So mm-hmm. anyhow, um, I love this book uh, because you, you're talking about really your process of healing from, from trauma and, and, and grief and, and your process to liberate yourself and, and, and utilizing therapy and utilizing African spirituality and, and yoga and plant and animal medicine and dancing and ceremony. And, and you're, you're taking us really giving us a, it really is a guidebook. Mm. I felt like you put your whole self into it. Like the ancestors were like, come on, Tina. (laughs) That's how it felt too. (laughs) It it felt like all the ancestors were coming out and just throwing in what they wanted to say. Cause it it felt like it came from beyond me. I will say that. I will, I will say that. That's what I felt reading it. Um, And so for those who haven't gotten a clue yet, get the damn book, get it now, <laughs> get a copy for yourself, get a copy for your local library or school or classroom, if that's even allowed, uh, but get the oh, book. They, they are certainly banning this one. Let me just, <laughs> let, let me say that the library might allow it. The public library may allow it. So get it for your public library, get it for your independently owned bookstores, your yes. black owned bookstores. Um, but the schools, they going they, mm Yeah, (laughs) I've already accepted. I cannot wait until my book is banned from the schools. And and that's, you know, uh, but but yeah, (laughs) thank you. What a huge compliment, though, right? (laughs) Listen, it is a huge compliment. It is. um, I've been grieved over the 
the black authors that have been banned recently. As I've been looking at the the list of names, um, I'll I'll speak the name of Alice Walker uh, right now because her birthday was yesterday. She just turned seventy nine, um, and I just feel blessed to still be to be on the planet with her because she. Um, I, I've loved her since I was seventeen, way back before I knew I was a queer. <laughs> like I didn't even know. And I've, I've loved her, but and her books have always been banned. So that's, she's, she's one thing, but, but Tasha, I've seen the children's books um, that are being banned that are affirming young black children's joy and humanity and giving voice to their story, to, to our story. And I, it, it has broken my heart to see. So um, thank you for the, the, the invitation for folks to buy it for Yes. In local communities. Uh, if any listeners um, want to reach out and contact you for speaking or consulting or to get your book or anything, how can they reach you? They can email me um, at Tina Strawn Life at Gmail. They can go to my website, Tina Strawn.com. They can follow me on Instagram at uh, Tina underscore strong underscore life or speaking of racism. And uh, yeah, those are the best ways to get in touch with me. And you can order the book at all major retailers. You can get it from Amazon and bookshop.org. We really love and appreciate bookshop.org. Go into your local Barnes and Noble and ask them for it. We need the major retailers to know that people are looking for um, queer black authors, like these titles, they need to be hearing that, um, that, that our, our words are necessary and in demand. So yeah, those are some ways that people can follow and contact me and support. This interview and this, just this time with you, it's not even an interview, just us conversating and getting to know each other. I am just so, I feel so grateful. So thank you so, so much for being here. Tasha, thank you for inviting me. And I feel the same way about this conversation. I've wanted to have it with you for a long time. And I hope to have you join us on a legacy trip soon. Only if there's queer people. Okay. I can, I, we, we, we definitely can make that happen. We'll, we'll have to figure out which one exactly. Cause do you want to be in Alabama or you want to come see me in, in Costa Rica? So you got go. options. I don't want to okay. go to Alabama. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I didn't, okay. I, I didn't think that you would necessarily, but then come on to Costa Rica. There's plenty of queer, plenty of, of black queer folk um, on legacy trips here. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.